Welcome to Mincast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. From the land of the Rubik's Cube, I'm Norbert. From the frozen south, I'm Joe. From Kolkata, the city of joy, I'm Nishant. From Bardtown, I'm Moss. From the buried and frozen Midwest, I'm Bill. And back from outer space, I'm Leo. This is episode 380, recorded on Sunday the 6th of February 2022. Livestream information is at mincast.org slash livestream. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us an email at mincast at mincast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post at the Mincast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mincast.org. First up in the news, we welcome Raspberry Pi OS in the future. NVIDIA does a release, System76 improves desktop responsiveness, the GNOME team shares a lot of interesting new stuff, Slackware is back from the dead, Peppermint OS betrays Ubuntu, and Debian is using Arch, by the way. In our security section, a Polkit vulnerability lies dormant for a decade. After Linux, GNU is also getting rusty, Ubuntu improves low memory handling, and Surfshark jumps the shark. Then in our wanderings, Moss strikes a chord, I further botch my system, Bill gets more airtime, Leo goes on an XLMX adventure, and Joe runs for board. And Nishant is a bunny. He keeps hopping around. So for the news, I had the idea for a couple of shows that uh, we should take turns with reading the pieces of news. So without further ado, Joe. Okay, first up in the news, Raspberry Pis. Raspberry Pi OS finally spins a 64-bit version. While the Raspberry Pi board had 64-bit CPUs since 2016, their official distro, Raspberry Pi OS, has remained 32-bit up until now. But there's now an official 64-bit v- build available. It has undergone testing over the past year and is now determined to be in good shape for use by customers. So yeah, here- a lot of other distros did have 64-bit. Yeah. But Raspbian, before it became Raspberry Pi OS, all 32-bit. And it was just like a big poke in the eye that they never had the 64-bit until now. The Pi still has some 32-bit chips on it is why it's taken this long. The Pi 1 and Pi 2 are the 32-bit chips. I have a, a Pi 2B Plus running Ubuntu 20.04, but it's the, it's the 32-bit version only. Then the Pi 3 and Pi 4 that I've got are all on 64-bit. And I thought... Surely Raspbian right. has had 64-bit up to this point, but apparently not. Well, it was kind of pointless until the um, the 8 gig yeah. came out for the, the Pi 4 to switch from a 32-bit to a 64-bit. There yeah. isn't that much of a performance saving unless you have that extra RAM. Well, the I guess the cool thing about it is that, you know, if my Pi 4 ever catastrophically fails, I could pull the card out and put it into the 3, and it would work. Mostly. That was one of the nice things about the ones, <laughs> twos, and threes. You could use yeah. the same card from the one doing whatever and put it on your three if you needed to. But technically, yeah. you can still put it in your four now. Also, you've always been able to get the ISO. Um, I've had it for some time, but you had to go to the download mirror and get it. They didn't make it readily available for a download option on their website. I've uh-huh. had it up and running for yep. like, about a year now, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't recommended. Yeah, but you could always get the Ubuntu 64-bit version, too. Yeah, I've had that, too. That's how I... That's the route I took. It's just way easier to do that. I've got it running right here. What about Pi 400B? The Pi 400. What chip do you... The Pi 400 is basically the Pi 4 with some slight, like, changes to how the hardware is situated. Okay. And the clocking is a little higher because it has more, um, what... 
thermal availability so that it can cool because it has more space to cool. Okay. That's what this is right here. And it works great. You just, you still can't watch Netflix on it. Oh, you can. I, tell me how. Um, you can't watch Netflix on it. <laughs> you can. Uh, there is, there's a way to do it. Um, what are, what are those drivers called? Um, oh, the non-free drivers? Yeah. Yeah. DRM? You have to have a special version of Chrome. I only know it. They are supposed to have DRM. Yeah, there's a special version of Chrome that you can install onto your Raspberry Pi or Chromium onto your Raspberry Pi that will allow you to watch Netflix. I'd have to look it up. What about I've Firefox? Actually brought it onto the show before. No, it's actually a, um, a version of Chrome. So Firefox is out of the question then. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'm sure there's a way to force the. Why can't I remember what it's called? I'll remember like halfway through the show and probably <clears throat> just like scream it out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Wait a bit back to Raspberry Pi. Can a 32 bit OS even support 8 gigabytes of RAM or just up to 4? Just up to 4. You can do like, uh, used to be called PAE where you'd be able to access the other RAM, but there were some limitations to it. When did the 8 gig model come out? Uh, Wide 2019. Oh, There's wow. my random screaming. It's Widevine. Widevine yeah. L3. Is that in the repos? Um, you need to install lib Widevine CDM0. Is it Widevine L3? So they had a board with 8 gigs of RAM while their official OS didn't support 8 gigs of RAM? There's a workaround for it to make it so that um, as long as one application wasn't using more than 4 gigs of RAM, you could make it work. Is it Lib Widevine 6? Yes, I believe so. Lib Widevine CDM0 is what I get Oh, yeah, here. okay. I, I, that's what it says. It looked like a 6. Okay. So what someone said on Telegram is that they probably didn't raise the 64-bit OS earlier to avoid confusion because uh, previous event distros uh, had both 32 and 64-bit uh, versions. They would usually put on a website that if you're unsure which one you need, just download the 32-bit version. That's the new way to do it. And the old way to do it was to use the uh, Chrome Media Edition. See, I knew y'all didn't need help getting to four hours. I didn't. Mm, I knew it. <laughs> Our shows actually have technically been shorter since you left. I have noticed that, actually, so it might be my fault. But I'm going to go with no. We're still on the first topic. <laughs> okay, um, that's pretty much it for the Raspberry Pi OS Spin 64-bit version. Bill, you're up next. All right, NVIDIA 510.47.03 driver released with support for kernel 5.17 and Vulkan 1.3. This is... Coming from 9to5Linux, I assume that's what that means. This version already has support for upcoming 5.17 kernel and the recently released Vulkan 1.3 graphics API. It also supports the GeForce RTX 3050 card and a GUI control for the settings image, sharpening values in the app profiles page of the NVIDIA settings control panel. It also introduces a new daemon called NVIDIA PowerD, which provides support for dynamic boost feature on supported systems for improved performance. The new driver updates to the NVIDIA.KO kernel module to load even if not supported. The minimum required kernel version changed from Linux 2.6.32 to Linux 3.10. Leo, spot on with your pred prediction for the kernel 5.17. Oh, yeah. Yep. They they usually come out in a pretty predictable cadence. Every time there's a new kernel, I get a bit nervous and hope that my existing NVIDIA drivers won't break. But this time, 
because usually when the new kernel is released, then the NVIDIA guys have to push a fix for the NVIDIA drivers in case they don't work well with the new kernel. But this time, they have support for it even before it releases, so it's a great job. Nice. They're getting ahead of it now. System 76 yeah. is working with NVIDIA, I believe, to make it for Pop OS. When exactly did they start the collaboration? Sometime in the past one or two years? Yeah, uh, Pop OS, I think 21.04 onward. I think it could be before that also, but it came to my notice just like last year when I read an article where they're saying like the developers of Pop! OS were collaborating with NVIDIA to make the drivers available for Pop! OS specifically. Okay, so System76 Scheduler is a Rust-based tool to improve responsiveness. So the Pop! OS scheduling service, which optimizes the CPU scheduler and automatically assigns process priorities for improved desktop responsiveness. So basically, processes are regularly sweeped and assigned priorities based on configuration files. So if we combine this with the current pop shell, uh, so foreground processes may get or will be given higher priorities and will result in noticeable improvement. So I don't understand how Rust is making a difference in speed and responsiveness. Well, they wrote the tool in Rust, and that's what's doing the, the decision making. So when you click on an application, that thing has the highest CPU priority. So it will always be performant, even if things in the background might be getting pushed to the back. So they might stutter or, you know, just they take a lower priority. Um, this kind of presents a problem when you end up in a situation where you're wanting to compile something. And then after you start to compile, you swap over to a web browser to watch some Netflix. Your compile is now in the background and will take a bit longer, which if you need it done, you need to just bring it to the foreground and walk away. Or, or watch a longer movie. Well, yeah, watch a longer movie would be another way. Uh, but there are tunables in this application that you can that you can tweak some knobs to turn that will allow you to kind of still get that compile done in a in a reasonable amount of time and still be able to watch Netflix. But if you're on a battery, uh, I don't know how that's gonna how well that'll work out for you. Okay, Leo. So coming to compilation time, Ubuntu based systems are way faster than Fedora in all aspects. I compiled one whole operating system called Serenity, and it was faster on Ubuntu than Fedora. So something like that, like compiling. Well, it's, it's probably kernel differences, but yeah, I mean, that makes sense. They have something regarding battery uh, here. They say that low latency CPU scheduling will be activated automatically when on AC, and the default scheduling latency is set on battery. Yeah, so it's not going to affect battery life, I hope. Well, Nishant, on the kernel thing, though, you got to be careful because Ubuntu actually tunes the kernels for Ubuntu. No, I used generic 5.16 on Ubuntu from the kernel.org. But also Fedora does the same for their kernels. Fedora was damn slow. Damn slow compared to Ubuntu. Wait, so Ubuntu was faster? Yeah, very much. Oh, wow. Wow. How well could this be implemented on other distros without the pop shell? I don't know. So is are they using the pop shell itself to make the determination what's in the foreground? Because it says that when combined with pop shell, foreground processes and their subprocesses will be given higher process priority. These changes result in not noticeable improvement in the experience, smoothness and performance of applications and games. The improved responsiveness of applications is most noticeable on older systems with budget hardware, whereas games will benefit from higher frame rates and reduced jitter. I assume the the logic is the same. What you need to do, I would imagine, is get Gnome Shell or Plasma or whatever to identify what window is in the foreground, and then 
that's the tweak you have to make to inform the rest of the Rust program to do what it does. Probably not difficult, but you've got to have someone that wants to do it. I kind of assume that desktop environments already had this feature. I understand that the Linux kernel is developed with servers in mind, so not low latency, but uh, throughput. Well, the MQ deadline is typically the scheduler that I see, so you got to take that up with MQ deadline. <laughs> okay, so there are two versions of kernels I have heard, like low latency version and the normal version. Like there's even a low latency version. I don't know what's that for, but okay. Yeah, I'm using Linux uh, Zen on my desktop. Zen is totally different. I haven't really noticed any significant difference in performance with the with the Zen kernel, but I also don't really play any resource-intensive games. Okay, so you're on Intel hardware. Yeah. I'm on AMD hardware, and Zen is battery-friendly. Oh, uh, I'm still on the generic kernel on my laptop, so I haven't experimented with the Zen mode kernel yet. No, I'm talking about Zen. Oh, Zen. Because the Zen kernel is uh, low latency. Doesn't it make battery life worse than the than the standard kernel? I have got like six to seven hours on Garuda with Zen. And I guess I should try that on my laptop as well. Next up, we have This Week in Gnome. So this is not a single piece of news, but rather the new blog on the Gnome website by the Gnome team. And each week they put out a post where Gnome developers share updates about their individual projects. And also they share major updates on the development. And with Gnome 42, it's really nice to have this post to be able to follow it. So if anyone wants to keep up with Gnome development, I highly recommend checking these posts out. They also post them weekly in the GNOME subreddit, and I've even seen GNOME developers reply to comments on Reddit. So some people say that their issue with GNOME is that they see a divide between the users and the developers. But what I've seen from these interactions in the comments on Reddit and the contents from the posts themselves, I would say that's not really true. The GNOME team have a very specific vision for the desktop. Ah, I love me some GNOME here lately. And my favorite thing, though, is uh, the rounded corners that they're getting rid of, not 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 on the windows. Wait, does it mean does it mean you like that they're getting rid of them, or are you, or do you like the corners? Oh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I haven't I haven't quite said yet. So, like you you have these little window corners that are basically on the uh, on that top bar. It has little fangs that come down on the left edges and the right edges that hug the uh, the window itself. So when you maximize a window, they, it kind of hugs and it's uh, nice. But they're getting rid of it and that's going to improve performance because apparently it turns out that drawing those things on the screen, regardless of whether you had a full screen window, uh, actually took additional CPU power, which meant Gnome Shell was using more CPU than other uh, other desktop environments. So they're getting rid of it. Yay! I'm, I'm actually excited for that because GNOME is fairly not performant on my laptop. It's gotten better over time. And if this is going to help any, uh, I love it. I'm I'm excited for it. This is pretty cool. Uh, Slackware. I've been waiting for this for so long. So, 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 so long. I, this, was, this was something that I wanted to do before I ever started Linux User Space. And then we started Linux User Space. And I'm like, man, one day when Slackware releases one. And this is two years ago, almost. Well, yeah, something like that. Uh, we'll do it. And then finally, it finally came out. Slackware 15, officially released a day or two ago. Slackhog and Day. What's that? On Slackhog Day. Sla- oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. I think I think that guy died, uh, that groundhog. <laughs> uh, so, you know, hopefully that doesn't bode uh, similar for Slackware. Uh, because uh, Slackware adopted pluggable authentication modules. And here I thought uh, Slackware had been using PAM forever. 
but no, turns out, no. They've also adopted uh, Pipewire, so you can do all that funny pluggable, uh, pluggable audio stuff as well. And shipping XFCE 4.16 and KDE Plasma 5.23. But, uh, Moss, maybe you might know better than I do, uh, but they keep up with their packages. They're not bleeding edge or anything, but their packages always update, right? Uh, last I checked, uh, by the way, when the groundhog dies, it means we have seven more years of winter. Oh. Oh. Well, that's, that's all right for me. I like the cold. <laughs> Just like Game of Thrones. You're in Texas. Winter is coming. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I like the cold, yeah. except when it's so cold that I have to put on so many layers that even moving my arm an inch will result in me sweating because I sweat a lot. So oh, that's, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't enjoy the sweating. I like, I like uh, autumn and, and the spring weather. Yeah. It's also interesting to know that Slackware has a branch called Slackware Current, which is a rolling release. That's like the arch of Slackware. Yeah. 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 So even though Slackware the previous stableries of Slackware still had outdated packages like uh, KDE 4 point something, 4.12, I think. Oh so God, it's that that's old. KDE 4. That's old. Yep. Wait, so so the current version, uh, 4. what is it, 2, 14.2? That was shipping with Plasma 4? Yes. Yep. It, it's not even what? Plasma technically. Oh, yes, wow. But, so it doesn't move. Yeah. Except for maybe on point releases or something. No, it didn't move on point release as well, right? Yes, but what does move is uh, Slackware current. And I assume that a right. lot of Slackware users for these past years have been moving over to current to keep up with packages. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're on a desktop, you might end up on current, but otherwise you're probably not. Yeah. You have to remember it has been six years since 14.2. Oh right, right, yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's not lost on me that it's been a it's been a very long time, but I didn't think they were still on Plasma Four. Wow, this is another Debian, I think. No, they didn't change yeah. from from when fourteen point two came out. Right, but I I know that's what may have been released at that time. But you're telling me that you couldn't do like a Slack package update of that particular package, and it it just would it wouldn't be five. I think Arch did a change in the naming convention. They went from calling it the KDE desktop to the Plasma desktop yep, when they switched they from four to five. So maybe maybe it was, uh, I mean, I don't know. You just needed to install that package and it would pull in five for you maybe? No, I think Plasma came uh, way before four released. Yeah, it, it was called Plasma in version four, but they didn't emphasize calling yeah. it Plasma until version yeah, five. Yeah, they didn't. Well, I mean, they didn't call the packages you needed, I suppose. I just realized how much I don't understand how the way Slackware packages stuff. Isn't it the same? Yeah. Like you would just, uh, you add the mirror. For example, you add the mirror for Slackware, either Slackware 15 or Slackware current, and you pull packages from there. Essentially. Because I've heard that they don't have a proper package management system. Uh, now I realize how young I am in the Linux world. They've got a package manager, but it doesn't resolve uh, dependencies. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why all these problems could be resolved by the new script, which Leo hasn't gotten around to telling us about. Not yet. So, uh, makeworld.shell, uh, it's a shell script that allows automatic rebuilding of the entire operating system from source. So I guess if you blow it up, <laughs> you get, and, and it's pre-compiled for all your actual system. So that's great. Uh, and then PKG tools, which I think is what Bill was talking about. Does it really not resolve dependencies for you? That's what I've heard. I've never tried it. How crazy would that be? Like that was always like the the biggest hurdle for most people was the fact that you yeah you end up in RPM heck or well yeah. Slack mm. Slackware's version of it I guess uh, interesting anyway so 
I guess the good news there is that if you've got an application that could use multiple types of uh, dependencies, then you could work that out on your own. And then once it's installed, it'll update just fine. Yeah. But it's just so, that initial install. Yeah, it does stuff. Um, because it looks like Package Tools uh, just got the ability to uh, lock files and prevent conflicts between parallel installs. So that's kind of cool. I imagine it can do that. Maybe you just have to specifically ask it to do so. Huh. Anyway. And then it also got the ability to limit the amount of data written to storage to avoid extra writes on SSD devices. So, I mean, if you're you know running that really, really, really old SSD for Slackware, uh, this might keep it alive an extra six months longer. But SSDs t- tend to fail safe, so you know even if you do run out of uh, the ability to write on an SSD, you can at least extract your data off of it, which is kind of nice. Well, the amount of disrobing I've done in the second half of 2020, and my SSD is still in good shape, so... Yeah, well, we're, we're talking thousands of terabytes written before you get to the edge yeah. of that, so yeah, you're, you're, you're still safe. Yes, but I kept reformatting that that small partition at the very beginning of the disk that time. So uh, yeah. it's not uniformly. Those particular blocks just get retired and then they move to the next block. So, I mean, your SSDs are pretty smart. Yeah, there's firmware on those things that do a lot of write balancing and make sure that the if you've got a block that's getting worn out, it'll move it. I mean. Yeah, so what, what you see visually, like whenever you're F-disking it or you're using it in uh, Gparted or whatever, it doesn't actually look like that on the disk. The, the physical disk usage of blocks and sectors is totally different than what you actually see. Uh, it would look a little more fragmented if, uh, yeah. So if I have a 20 gigabyte root partition at the beginning of the disk, and I keep rewriting that, it's not just wearing out the first 20% of the disk itself, or does it? Not necessarily. It, it wears out wherever the SSD firmware decided to write that 20 uh-huh. gigs. And it doesn't have to be contiguous, and it doesn't have to be in any, it doesn't even have to be at the front. It could be at the back. You just told it to be at the front, and the firmware was like, you know what? You're going back here. Just because that's what the firmware said. So Interesting. Yeah. So it still wears the disk uniformly everywhere. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Okay, question. Why do we see like 50 gigabytes less compared to the actual size? Like 512, we get only 476. Uh, that's, that's metadata. Yeah, well, metadata and megabytes versus mibabytes. So there's a sci- there's a there's a scientific denote of how big something is, and then there's what Seagate said because Seagate could slap one terabyte on it and sell you 930 gibs. Yep, so it- you know. And it's also going to depend on what file system you go with. If you go with Extended 4, you've got some uh, file system metadata for the journaling. And then uh, if you go with a ButterFS, then you've got you've got metadata that is specific to the checksumming and on things Fedora, like that. On Fedora, it just, like Ubuntu, it just shows me 512 gigabytes exact. Because it corrects what it sees, what it assumes. Because it, this is a loophole that manufacturers exploit. Yeah. Because the way the disk is made, it uses powers of 10, so it actually has a 1,000 gigabytes. But computers use is powers of 2, not powers of 10. So if you read that and convert it to gigabytes, then you get not a full terabyte, but like 931 or something like that. So now I understand while preparing your partitions why you need to put like 110 something megabytes, uh, like 110,000 yeah. megabytes for 100 gigabytes. The way you know, here's the deal. You can you can just kind of dispel it like this. The way you know is if you see MB or MIB. MIB is the scientific one. That'll be the power of two. The MB is the non-scientific one, 
and you know it can be anything so except when it's not the case except when something just uses maybe bytes but still shows mb well sure but you know that's on them not on you i have to put 110000 megabytes for 110 gb for 100 gb sorry like 10 yep. more whatever the software requires i always use gparted because it actually uses proper measurements if i want a 20 gig partition i go 20000 480. I just multiply 20 times 1024 and then put that in megabytes and yeah. Yes, but because I've done so much partitioning, I just memorize those <laughs> values. This can be a whole tried, topic for but, uh, the, another episode, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There was another this release. Yeah, Peppermint OS 11 is released in its first version since the passing of Mark Greaves. Peppermint OS 11 is out no longer based on Ubuntu but on Debian 11 Bullseye and it ships with Linux 5.10 LTS kernel. Another major change is the switch to XFCE instead of LXDE. Nemo is used as the default file manager instead of Thunar. There's a streamlined set of icons and themes and Calamaris is used as the installer instead of Ubiquity. New apps include the Welcome to Peppermint application which lets you quickly customize Peppermint OS by installing extra software and a web browser. There's no web browser installed by default and Peppermint Hub, a tool that combines the previous Peppermint settings and control center apps. I got my next distro to hop onto after the show. Peppermint <laughs> PC NetSpec edition. Well I like it. It runs really well from a USB stick. It's it's a good cuz it it's got so many web apps. It's kind of their claim to fame and it, it it's it's got a small install size and it runs really really well from from a small amount of space. Yeah, the the web app thing, that's where uh Clem and Linux Mint got their inspiration and a lot of code uh to get the web app manager going in. Peppermint originally was a fork of Mint. Yeah. And then it wasn't. <laughs> and then it wasn't. Now it isn't. And Peppermint OS 11 introduces HBlock, a terminal-based ad blocker that you can enable or disable at any time, a minimum set of desktop wallpapers, and enables NumLock by default, which may affect some laptop keyboard. <laughs> Finally, layouts. are you kidding? That, yeah. That. Oh, come yeah, on. That is a huge point of contention. I'll tell you. That's that's how people get their passwords wrong all the time. I, I, If uh, you yeah. have a 10 key keyboard, you need that. Yeah. Well, here we use the UK layout or the US layout, so not a problem for us. Well, it still is a problem because you still have the if you still have the numeric keypad that still yeah. affects you. On my hardware, I have a numeric keypad, but nowadays, um, my dad, which uh, like Lenovo, which he bought, does not have that uh, the numeric keypad. Yeah, mine doesn't either. But my desktop, I like a full size keyboard on my desktop and I have numlock off so I can use the arrows on the uh, num on the numpad to tie my windows instead of super left right up down it's one key less to press pc netspec edition it is called moss if i'm not mistaken after the lead developer i was just going through the website and i down the iso is ready i'm just ready to hop onto it after this and finally in news Linux wunderkind Rudra Sarasvat has added yet another project to his resume, Project Una, which means Una's not apt. We've heard this kind of recursive... Uh, oh, I hate that. I hate acronym do. before. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Proje Project Una is a client to simplify installing software from the MPR or MakeDeb package repository, a new home for community-contributed software analogous to Arch Linux's AUR. 
So is this going to stop the Debian and Ubuntu hemorrhage to Arch-based distros? No. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think so either. Depends but, on how well it works. Well, I mean, it seems to me you're just compiling the software uh, according to the, the, the package script that is provided. And, I mean, to be honest with you, I feel like you could probably steal a lot of that from the AUR in the first place if you just want somewhere to start. Uh, so I, I imagine it'll be one-to-one pretty quick. Go ahead, Moss. In terms of stealing code, he's also started a new third-party Snap store called LOL. I love it. Oh, my God. So he's done the thing that everybody was complaining about, the people complaining about Snap needed to do. Right. I love it. <laughs> Man, this this kid is about to just change the way that everybody in 10 years he's going to run canonical i I swear you know if he's not i feel like you need someone else at least as forward thinking as him as an indian i can be proud of his achievements he's indian to be honest i tell you i'm i'm proud of this kid almost like he's my own kid i i i'm one of the people that donated to his uh ubuntu unity project early on wait it's the same person from ubuntu unity yeah yeah Oh, th- this guy has about a million projects going on at the same time, and he's fantastic at all of them, yeah. And in a new blog post, Rudra gives instructions on setting up Nextcloud on a Raspberry Pi. Oh, that's that's easy. Hey, now, I've I've had a post out for two years that is that has detailed that, and I've used it multiple times. So, you know, I mean, you could, you could see that one, too. Well, yeah, but <laughs> that, that post might not have been as accessible to someone in, in New Delhi. Snap, install, Nextcloud. Bob's your uncle. I mean, that's basically it, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I have followed this person a long time. I, he apparently views me as a friend almost as much as I view him as one, so I'm Oh, I'm I see. Happy. Oh. He's using... He's using Docker and LXC to do his. I met him. I got to know him through the Unity Telegram group, the Ubuntu Unity, and I used Unity for one month. Just amazing piece of work. Takes me back to my 14.04 days when I started out with Ubuntu LTS. You have to remember that uh, Rudra started out by coming up with his first distro using Linux from scratch at age nine. Linux from scratch. That's crazy. I was digging holes in the front yard at age nine. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm feeling old. Re- really kind of reminds you where you are, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling old and I haven't done anything solid in Linux world yet. <laughs> You're feeling old. Well, I am old, people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel yes, like Moss. I've accomplished nothing. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better at nine, I was writing in basic on my grandpa's Atari. That makes me feel worse, Joe. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, no, Joe. Actually, what I meant to say is that's an incredible achievement for a young tech enthusiast, no doubt. I had an Atari 2600 when I was nine. Uh, this was the Atari um, 400? Yeah. So, Leo, what does... I was 17 before we even had pocket calculators. Don't talk to me about this stuff. <laughs> so, guys, guys, so what does it take to develop our own operating system? time oh my moving on first we have to do Linux from scratch and then we'll be <laughs> an initiative able to answer that no like what understanding like we need to have the processor understanding and stuff right so that's pretty cool at such a young age he used to understand all the embedded stuff first you need to obtain the answer to life the universe and everything well he didn't have to know everything because the kernel does a lot yeah of that. Uh, you're talking about kernel development not uh, os development uh, i'm talking about architecture like amd64 or something like that for software development you don't necessarily have to know all about the hardware okay hey leo we're all the way up to page four of 11 
Oh, uh, <laughs> these are some high scores, man. Oh, speaking of Unity, I also think it it was a shame that it was dropped. Ubuntu on Unity was a better experience than Ubuntu on GNOME because Ubuntu GNOME feels a bit botched. I like to use that word. I'd like to see him go back to it. There, I said it. But one question: How is he getting all the Unity code when it's discontinued? It's on Launchpad. Or just use, or just yeah, they open source mm. it when they discontinued okay. it. Okay, that's good. Wasn't it open source before? It's the hack on it. Unity. It's always been open source, but it's not on GitHub. It's on Launchpad. Ah. Okay. Or Ubuntu could just adopt uh, Cosmic as their desktop, which would be that won't happen. Yep, that won't happen, but it would be nice. We can wish for it. Just check out Rudra's blog. He talks about all the things he's working on, and they're all exceptional. I think Ubuntu is going to go with something Flutter-based. We can wish for that, but don't expect it to be fulfilled. And now let's move to our security section. Twelve-year-old pull kit, local privilege escalation flaw now patched. Now? Now? now just patched. now? Just now. Okay. Yes, this is brand new. Nobody's ever known anything about this until now. Oh, goodness. No, we knew. Yeah. We knew five, six years ago. There were posts oh, about it saying exactly what was happening and heresy. exactly this. Oh, boy. Oh, but hey, but it's fixed. Okay, it's fixed. Imagine what would have happened to the popularity of Linux if anybody would have hacked it. All Windows fans would be going crazy by now. Security researchers from Qualis, Qualis, somebody, Qualis, have disclosed a flaw in PullKit, formerly known as PolicyKit, component present in all distros for controlling system-wide privileges. According to researchers, the vulnerability was discovered in PolicyKit's PKExec tool, which incorrectly handles command line arguments. This could lead to local privilege escalation, allowing any regular user to gain administrative privileges and run programs as an administrator. What could possibly go wrong? The PK exec tool was vulnerable for more than 12 years since its creation in May 2009, and it can be exploited even if the pull kit daemon is not running. The good news is that most major distributions have already received patched versions of the PullKit package. Uh, for example, Debian 10 and 11 all supported Fedora and RHEL releases, Arch, and OpenSUSE. And all supported Ubuntu releases, I forgot to add that. I mean, I saw the update on everything I'm running. In fact, I saw that update before I even knew anything about this, and I was wondering, wow, that's one I don't see very often. Yeah. So we have a vulnerability being fixed, which is even older than Rudra Sarasvat. Yes. But the <laughs> the interesting thing about this is that I think it, it it had a lot of folks really spooked, but it's not necessarily more egregious than other issues that we've had in Linux. So, I mean, Nishant, to your point, I don't think anybody's going to run away from it, even if we have another one of these that's 15 years old, because it's it's local privilege escalation. This is This is one of those situations where you left your laptop up, on, logged in, and you walked away. Then someone can use your non-privileged account to then escalate and then run nefarious things. So you literally had to have handed someone your laptop for them to be able to exploit this. That's usually true of a lot of these vulnerabilities. It is, yeah. My concern here was, like, if 
what if a person SSHing into your computer uses this? Well, that that wasn't this particular flaw. That was them getting into your computer. You did something else wrong that allowed them to be able to take advantage of this thing. So you can use it remotely, but not by itself. So this this is exactly what my debate has been going on, that Linux cannot be hacked or attacked unlike Windows with the Windows users. Well, anybody says that about any operating system, they're wrong. So, you know, whatever. That is it's wrong. Fine. I mean, look at look at Windows, WannaCry, where, where it was a remote code execution. If Samba was on, you were able to get full administrative privileges on the machine from anywhere in the entire world. That's bad. Yeah. This is not that. Yeah, any system can be hacked. I mean, we've said that before. And physical access is king. If somebody has your computer, sooner or later, they're going to get into it. Yeah, that's it's just a matter of time there. Unless you encrypt the storage. Well, yeah, but but as a as a link in a multi step process to pwn a machine, this is great. <laughs> if you haven't patched against this, uh, and they already have step one or step two, all they really need to do is like drop the payload where they need this. Uh, this is going to be great for them. This is like link two or three. Good stuff. So if there was, for example, an SSH vulnerability before this was fixed, yeah. that would have been way worse. But then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but then for that, you also have to have the SSH dreamer running on your system so other people can uh, connect, right? Right, exactly. So it's, I mean, it's very targeted in general, but I think a lot of the exploits that you see nowadays are very much multi-part. So, right, I mean, this is not going to get exploited with, as you said, an SSH vulnerability to go along with it. And, uh, you know, it's never one thing that blows everything up. So Linux is not invincible, as I once thought, without any virus or something. Oh, yeah, you should never have thought that. But because you did, yeah, you should, yeah, rethink that. It, it is, it's not perfect. For a long time, the tagline was that there weren't any viruses for Linux. But the reason that there weren't any viruses for Linux is because people that were writing viruses got more use out of viruses that were written for Windows because yeah. Linux is like, what, 2% of the market, 1% of the market? Yeah. And back it then was it was a popularity less. thing. Yeah, yeah if, you wanna, if you're going to be the person to write a virus, you're going to want to uh, write something that's going to have access to the largest attack surface possible and the user base that <laughs> encompasses one percent of computer users computer users out there is not going to be what you're going to shoot for yeah. so the fact that we've been less less vulnerable to viruses yeah, is just potentially rob a million people or potentially rob a hundred people exactly uh, go with the million okay yeah. i was yeah. confused that's why i switched to linux that was the reason and those who were developing malware for Linux were usually targeting servers because that's that makes more sense. That's where the money yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. But PK exist exists on servers, so uh, PK exec exists on servers, though. So you know. Yeah, but the server is too. probably harder to get physical access to than someone's desktop. True. Show note mentions that Red Hat Enterprise releases were affected, so only those servers which were running Red Hat at that point of time. Pretty much everything was affected. PK execs everywhere. Okay. Uh, everywhere. So the notion that Linux is invincible is wrong. Yes. Yeah, you can make your computer invincible by unplugging the internet. There you go. 
Actually, no, you would still be you would still be affected by the PK exec thing though. So no. sort of. And or, or you could <laughs> or you could move to the mountains on the forest where you don't even now, need to Now, there you go. Unplug from the internet, go to the mountains where there's absolutely nobody physically within like a couple of miles and then that's that's real security right there. Mm. It also keeps your computer cold by compiling Gen2. <laughs> Thank you for this All right. this true thing. Yeah, <laughs> up next. A rest with them replacement to the GNU core utils process progressing, some binaries now faster. Along with the broader industry trend of transitioning security sensitive code to memory safe languages like Rust, there has been an effort to write a Rust based replacement to GNU core utils. For nearly a year, Rust core utils have been able to run a basic Debian system, while more recently they have been increasing their level of GNU core utils compatibility and in some cases now even outperforming the upstream project. GNU Core Utils provides some of the common and important command line tools on Linux systems and other platforms, like uh, CAT, LS, RM, CHMOD, MKDIR, WC, WhoAmI, and dozens of others. Not only should the REST Core Utils be more secure, but for some binaries they are now seeing significantly better performance than out-of-the-box GNU package for commands like head, cut, and other common ones. They remain on the challenge of closing the compatibility gap for these utilities with the upstream GNU commands. One of the long remaining binaries still to be implemented is STTY. So I've been, I, I really want to know who's out there running cat and then like a file, and then they're like, man, this is really slow. We should recompile everything. <laughs> I mean, th- that's, it's, it's great. But now the, the secondary question I have is, so they're not, the GNU utilities anymore. They are fully rewritten in Rust and... Well, I would like to interject for a moment while referring to as Linux is in fact Rust slash Linux. Oh, there it is. Oh! see that, So, I need to know if I can say that. Like, so they're not the GNU core utilities anymore and if they're going to be replaced, is it going to be like instead of cat, it's going to be dog or is it still going to be called cat? Well, I... It will probably be called Cat, because if you if you have this, then you probably don't have the GNU core util, the GNU core utils. So there's no there's no question. What is core utils over here? The commands which we run. It's basically your operating system minus the kernel. Yeah, it's the basic commands that you would use uh, on the command line that are that are consistent across all the distros. Yeah, Rusty Cat. Ooh. Well, there is a, a command line tool that inst- I installed called Dust, which is basically DU, but rewritten in Rust, and it has a way nicer output, which is why I used it. I don't really know the the benefits of Rust, which leads me to asking something important. I've heard someone say that while Rust is uh, more secure, because it's a, mem- it's a memory-safe language, but something written in Rust is also slower to run than something written in C. Well, it's it's a higher level language, so you always get that artifact with things, which is interesting that Rust is running faster using these utils than than the GNU GCC compiled one. I guess Rust has a better compiler. Maybe. Rust is an interpreted language. I have read about it a bit. It's just like Python. Rust is interpreted? I thought it was compiled. It is compiled, but you can compile uh, Python as well, right? Yeah. No, well, sort of, sort of. I mean, mm-hmm. you can stack all the libraries that you need for the Python thing you need, mm-hmm. but it's interpreted, yeah. isn't it? So, Eris, Eris in the uh, live chat is brought up a uh, he she he she brought up a good point that uh, some of these new Rust utilities are not GPL. Uh oh. So, <laughs> I, I'm not a developer, but one thing I've not been comfortable with in the last few years is our growing dependence on these 
program languages that uh, are made by these big companies? Uh, Rust is not made by a company, Bill. It's an independent project. Well, these tools, who are the tools made by and what are they licensed under then is the next question. Because if it's GPL compliant, like uh, the Mozilla or something similar like the MIT, we're still okay. So what I, what I want to ask is, uh, okay, so Rust is slower but more secure, but how important is it to move to a memory-safe language? Oh, my Norbert. Norbert, I'm going to need you to stop right now. It is extremely What What we are seeing, I think... Uh, is C and C++ are very difficult languages to fully understand and fully code for in a secure manner. One of the things that um, that we are, I guess, experiencing now is that the types of flaws that Rust is preventing against are quite literally the types of flaws that we are seeing in the headlines right now. Mm-hmm. It's because you have very good programmers writing C and C++ code, but they don't have the security chops to back that up, so they forget to plug a memory hole. They um, they leave the ability for buffer overflows that hmm. can then lead to you know execution flaws. So it's extremely important for Rust to be doing the work that they're doing, or a programming language like it. Leo, it's MIT license. Ah, uh, that's fine then. I mean. I don't particularly like it. That gives you know big companies the ability to make changes to it and then hide those changes from you, which is not cool. But I mean, the the base of it all is going to be free for everybody, which is almost as cool. That's why I like the GPL. The GPL is forces you to be nice. The MIT allows you to just take your creation and move to the corner and hide it from everybody. Yeah, and to be fair, I I I thought it was a Mozilla project, which I guess we're supposed to like that anyway. But no, no, no. Not if you listen to the wider Linux ecosystem. Mozilla sucks. So, you know. I just... <laughs> so, Leo, adding to your point of developers, nobody blames the developers. They either blame the code uh, code analysts. In, I'm talking about August I mean, 9th. I do. They either yeah, blame the business analysts or who gather the requirement and send them to the le- developers or they blame the higher management for the bug. Well, yeah, that's how it works. I blame the developer. They blame their management for wanting the code no, done in half they the blame, time. You know, they blame the people who gather the requirements, like business analysts. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's yes. But at the end of the day, even if you don't have the, enough time, I mean, you better put your pen to paper and say that these things aren't done by the end of the job so that whenever the firings come – you at least have a good claim for no, uh, some compensation. But my <laughs> my friend wasn't fired though. Oh, that so he's still working she for the company working. that has unrealistic. Uh, so she's still working for a company that has unrealistic expectations, huh? Pretty much all programmers. I got you. Okay. So I mean, to go back to my original point though, how comfortable are we that these more high performance, newer, modern programming programming languages are moving away from the GPL? And I haven't used Golang or Rust, but Rust I have compiled for a CLI program, and Rust is way faster than C C plus plus. Right. In my opinion, is the fact that it's better enough of an argument to uh, I move? I don't think we're going to change that. I haven't used it extensively, so if you want to contribute to a project, security project exclusively using um, Rust, there's a project called Enarchs. Like it's like container project which is like security i'll share the link in public leo the sort of problems that memory safe languages uh address when you say when, when you when you say memory safe is it uh, vulnerabilities like uh, spectre and uh, meltdown 
You can kind of think, them, think yeah. of them like that, yes. Or more like, for example, I faced a, a memory leak for the first also, time. Also, yes. Yeah, so I, f- I, I faced a memory leak in the color profile daemon of XFCE, which is very interesting, because when I boot up my system with XFCE, it's using around five to 600 megabytes of RAM. One day I booted it up, and it was using up to a gig, and it took way longer for the terminal to open it. It was odd because it's actually it's supposed to be snappy. And then I updated the system and it went away. Interesting. So, so okay, if the way... Like, okay, I see everyone uh, moving to development. I see that Rust is becoming more and more popular, so I assume there must be a valid reason behind it. I was just a bit confused because I see argument for and against it on the internet, and it's hard to interpret what's relevant and what's not. It Rust is Rust is going to make the developer's job easier, so I imagine it's going to get adopted eventually mm. by by a lot more people that are writing. Secret. How noticeable is the decrease in performance? I when, not, when, in the utilities that we're talking about, I mean, seriously, you have to get scientific with it. Well, not the utilities, but generally, if you, for example, the new uh, Cosmic desktop will be Rust based. It it depends. I mean, you, you just have to benchmark it. To be honest, uh, yeah. you have to like if you can check out the project on the public channel which i have posted it's a confidential computing mm-hmm. where rust is being used to program the components of that mm-hmm. it's a red hat backed what's read the next one me all right ubuntu 22.04 lts is integrating system d out of memory daemon for improving low memory handling if i'm not mistaken this is what fedora did in fedora 34 i think it was 33 or 34 i'm sorry what was that yeah. that was system what out system. of memory demon. Demon demon with the no, long E. No, yeah, absolutely. Daemon? Da- Daemon. Da- Daemon. No, it's it's the day's over. So demon. Daemon. <laughs> Daemon. Yeah. Well the biologist yeah. in me just wants to pronounce the system the umdi. Ah, uh, oh yeah. Well, I guess um is uh, you you hear that out of, uh, all yeah. the time. Like umpa to, to me, it meant more out of mana in games yeah. than so, out oh, of memory. It's but, but that's the same demon, idea. right? No demon. Demon. Oh, okay. So yeah, you, fight, you fight demons in the game, and then you restart demons in your server, and you're good to go. But the cool thing about the out of memory demon is that it'll improve the experience when, uh, I mean, pretty much when you're running with all of your memory. Uh, it'll kill the processes that need to be killed and kind of allow you to have that breathing room and not have to use swap nearly as much. So it's something like what uh, Android already does. Uh, yeah, actually, pretty much all modern operating systems do something like this. Linux always did something like this, but the uh, out-of-memory daemon no, but, is doing a better job of it than it had but in But when past. in Linux, what I've seen is it immediately goes to the swap once the RAM is completely filled. It does not kill any process. So you can configure it to do so, is really all I'm getting at. Okay. We're talking about running processes. Yeah. That, yeah. And this will be all nice and by default, so... Can it kill uh, individual tabs from your browser? Because I know that... That's more of a Firefox or Chrome thing, that it will internally sleep those tabs. Um, I don't think Oom will go that far into your processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it uses memory pressure and not necessarily you know specific things that a, like a browser might be doing internally to make its decisions. So essentially, it's dumber than you think, but it's still pretty smart. A week ago, TechRadar reported that popular VPN provider Surfshark, which I use, has remained coy about its ownership or corporate structure. However, in a first, Surfshark CEO and founder Viotatis Kaziokonis 
revealed to Verschlozinios, a Lithuanian business news site, that Surfshark was developed alongside Nord Security and NordVPN under the umbrella company and business incubator Tesonet, which is better known for developing marketing uh. companies. This new disclosure raises some interesting questions about the specifics of Surfshark's links to NordVPN past and present, and why this has never been admitted to before. Tessanite's website lists a dozen products that it has created and invested in, including Nord Security's range of offerings, but does not reference Surfshark. And this week, TechRadar announced it merged with Nord. Nord Security and Surfshark have announced plans to join forces in what is arguably the biggest merger or acquisition the VPN industry has ever seen. This comes just 72 hours after we wrote about the close ties between the two brands. Although figures have not been disclosed, we believe that the value of the combined entity will surpass that of the new arch-rival formed by the acquisition of ExpressVPN by CAPE, owner of PIA VPN and some other smaller VPN services, in September 2021, a deal worth nearly $1 billion. Intriguingly, Surfshark and NordVPN disclose that the agreement marks the end of a process that started in mid-2021, likely even before the ExpressVPN deal took place. Does this mean I'm changing VPN providers? Uh, no. Yeah. I oh. am. Well, well, are you using Nord? I, I, no, I, I've been using Surfshark. Uh, it runs out in May, and I'm probably going back to Mulvad. How big of a concern is this? Because I've also heard the news when PI was acquired. Oh, that Joe, the new we go parent company. No, I, I will try to be brief. So how how big of a concern was the PI acquisition? Is it, Was it also a marketing company? CAPE is owned by a person who is formerly Israeli military and a person who is formerly Israeli secret service. Mm, I like that. And uh, so the fact that uh, we think they're not releasing any information doesn't mean they're not collecting it. Yeah, just assume that whatever you do on your VPN is going to be tracked, no matter who you go with. You can try to do your best. But, I mean, there's so much mealy-mouthed lawyerese in, or legalese in all of those contracts that pretty much anybody would be able to weasel out of whatever they promised you because of you know, subsection 3 over here. So you, you just need to be aware that a VPN is not actually going to fully protect you in any any way, but it will let you watch Canadian Netflix, so that's cool. And remember, it's only been about a year since Nord actually had a leak. So data privacy is a myth, according to the discussion we are having here right now. Yes. As Chris Fisher says, it matters who you transfer your trust exactly. to. Exactly. I was just about to say it. I've said it before. A VPN is just passing the trust. This is what Joe. This is what I was getting at with, oh, Joe, here we go again. Because Joe and I have had this conversation multiple times on this show, where you have to fully trust and... Do you really actually fully trust Proton VPN? I mean, really, like a hundred percent that they absolutely under no circumstances would ever give your data out to anybody? I don't trust anybody, not even my friends to give my data out. This is all academic because we're all using Mozilla VPN anyway, so everything's fine. Oh my fine. goodness. Ooh, that's blasphemy in some circles. I love it though. That's is it Mozilla VPN just a reprinted VPN? I will point out if you are using Mozilla VPN... You are using Mulvad. Yes. At a bit of a premium, but still, so I it's don't built in. Do you entrust my friends with my data? That's Again, the right attitude can... to have, I think. Encrypt everything. Mm. Again, you can just unplug your computer and move to the mountains. Nobody touches my computer except my dad, just to ch- 
check or what is going on or what is my son doing. And he, and he probably used that PK exec flaw to get in. So, yeah. <laughs> He's not that tech savvy. some rootkits now. He's not that tech savvy, <laughs> but he can. <laughs> He's a Windows user. I fully plan on moving to the mountains, but I'm still going to set up a satellite dish if I need to get access. <laughs> First, we need a better... Uh, what's the name of Elon Musk's uh, satellite internet? Starlink. Starlink, yeah. We need better coverage for that. India or India? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to trust Jeff Bezos with your data. Wait, Starlink is not Jeff Bezos. It is Elon Musk. It's Elon Musk. We need an open source alternative to Starlink. Musk, Bezos, billionaire, billionaire... Oh, did you guys know that it is running Linux, the satellite? This does not surprise me. I mean, basically, the space program runs on Linux. If it goes into space, it runs Linux. And International Space Station? That actually is not true. They are only uh, starting to get Linux worked in. There are a whole lot of things that are not running Linux. Yeah, they were running and Solaris fact, the Mars and a lot of stuff. The Mars program only introduced Linux through the helicopter. I have a question here. What is the Linux distribution they're using on International Space Station? Because they are using Linux. That's top secret. Yep. Okay. Okay, so... Um, they probably don't use PolicyKit. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I have a weird question. If you had to shoot a time capsule into space that po- that aliens could potentially find, and you wanted to put a computer in it, what distro would you put on the computer to best represent operating systems? Or Linux? To best, to best represent Linux? There is an answer, Nishant. The ISS is running Debian. Okay. Okay. Uh, Can we continue because uh, Leo has to go? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Your, your Wi-Fi is... You're being charged for the Wi-Fi, right? No. It's running. By the minute. Okay. It's like monthly now. So don't worry about it. Mm. Yesterday okay. it was like... I didn't pay for it. So it stopped working. And now let's go to our bi-weekly wanderings. Well, it looks like I'm up first here. Nothing new in hardware for me. I've been struggling with Conky and Arco Linux on getting nowhere. Of course, it's easy to turn Conky off and not worry about it. A note from Londoner in the Telegram group got me to cancel my renewal due in August for Surfshark VPN, as we just discussed in our security update. Looks like the only companies out there which have yet to be actually found untrustworthy are Protown and Molvad. I'm talking to my wife about going to, back to Molvad and what that would mean. I joined FOM.org for the first time. This stands for the February Album Writing Month, which means that I am committed to attempting to write at least 14 songs, original or parody, during the month of February. I've had a slow time as a songwriter, an average of one song per year through 2020, and then last year saw me writing five new songs, two of which were originals, so I'm thinking I can push my output by committing to the project. I don't know if I can make 14, but I've already made two halves, <laughs> if you're interested in hearing any of my recorded music, the link is in the show notes. So far, I'm not doing so well, but failure is common. It's the effort which matters. I agree with you, Max. Is this like Inktober, but for musicians? I do not know. Inktober is a, a challenge when in October each year, artists would create a new piece of uh, uh, a new piece of artwork each day done by hand with ink. Haven't heard of it, but okay. 
I have two guitars which need repair. I've dawdled incessantly on getting this done, but I finally took one of them, the Alvarez 5081, to the shop. It needed a bit more work than the other, and I don't know what I don't know the repair people well in this neck of the woods, so it's best to do them one at a time. So, Moss, when we get to see you play guitar? I've played on the show a few times, or played in the pre-show a few times. I have a YouTube channel. It doesn't have a whole lot on it, but it's got some stuff. Um, and I also have a link in the show notes for where my what what little bit of professionally recorded music I have is available. Okay, I'll give it a look. Okay, Norbert, I think you're up. So... On the Linux side of things, I was looking for ways to better share data between flat packs of the same applications between distros when dual booting. Because uh, I have a couple of applications that I always install as flat packs, uh, namely Discord, Microsoft Teams, Slack, and some various other ones that I just prefer not to have to set up and have available quickly for, for university stuff. And they also take up quite a bit of space. I can quickly check how much. Uh, around 3 gigabytes. And because I multi-boot uh, a couple of these throws, usually two, sometimes three. Currently I have three because uh, I decided to give Fedora another try. And I found a way to share the user data between them. Since they store the user settings in uh, in your home directory slash dot var, I just moved that directory to a different partition, my, my data partition, where I have read slash write writes to everything. And I sim-linked this to my home directories of each distro. This way, even right after freshly installing the things like Discord and Teams, I was already logged in when I started them for the first time uh, via Flatpak. And then I realized something else. Why would I want to waste space by installing the same Flatpaks on each of those three distros? Surely the files must be the same because they're supposed to have the same versions. Flatpak Flatpak is supposed to be universal. So I looked into it and I discovered that if you use the flag dash dash user, so Flatpak dash dash user, install or remove or anything else, it will put all of the files for those flatpacks inside your home folder. I think under that local slash share slash flatpack. So then I moved that directory to my data partition as well, and I same linked it to each of my distros. And this way, when I would install a new distro, and I would set up these two sim links, and I install flatpack, all of those flatpack applications would magically appear among my applications without me having to manually install them. And I'm logged in and everything. Uh, I also did some further exploration of Sway, the, uh, a Wayland-based window manager and compositor, to finally be able to use it as my main session on my laptop. I found a great Wayland-based terminal emulator called Foot, which is short for Foo Terminal. The developer does point out that they are not great with, at naming things, which uh, starts up noticeably faster than XFC Terminal, which I've been using, which of course uh, I think it has to use Vex Wayland because it's not a native Wayland application. So... Moving to native Wayland applications feels nice. They somehow feel snappier. Also, using a Wayland compositor also feels better than using an X-based one. Because when I tried to set up i3 with uh, PyCom, I got very bad graphics artifacts on my Intel graphics. But uh, Sway seems to work flawlessly. And uh, that's pretty much what I wanted to say. So, Well, this week has been uh, interesting given the weather that we've had here in northern Indiana. Work was cut short on Wednesday for most people. Most of the guys I work with didn't come in Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday because we got some parts of the area got about a foot and a half of snow. Other areas got closer to two feet. So our boss, being ever so safety conscious, uh, decided to to uh, ground all the trucks that were not on the road as of Wednesday 
on Wednesday morning. However, I was uh, in Roanoke, Virginia on Wednesday morning, so I had the day. I had the day of Wednesday to drive home, so I wasn't I wasn't robbed of three days' pay, but I was home for uh, Thursday and Friday, um, which gave me some time to work on some stuff. But anyway, on uh, Monday I started off by running a roll-off box out to Brackenridge, Pennsylvania, with which is a uh, suburb of Pittsburgh, and uh, I did that in a round trip back home, and then on Tuesday I loaded that that one I just told you about in New Haven and took it out to Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, the whole time I knew what was heading towards me. Uh, I didn't actually run into any snow until I hit the state line, the Ohio-Indiana state line, um, on my way home, and that was when it just turned into an instant blizzard, um, the likes of which we haven't seen around here in quite so many years. We've been, we've had some pretty mild winters the last three or four years, so I think we've been kind of spoiled. Um... So, yeah, I was off Thursday and Friday, and it gave me some time to uh, work on some more of the back-end stuff for my new podcast. Um, for anybody that might not be aware, I'm working on a new podcast called uh, Three Fat Truckers. To give it a little more context, um, there's three of us guys that talk on three-way a lot. And at some point, we decided, you know, why don't we uh, share some of this stuff? Maybe other people might enjoy hearing it you know because we tend to go on and on about different things so it's it's going to be a podcast by uh basically just general conversation and the outlook on life from the perspective of the cab of three trucks and it was kind of nice having that time off to work on some of the uh back end for that because it was all new to me i think i've got some of the uh some of the details ironed out with regards to getting the uh, YouTube page started, um, most of you would be aware that I've got the community established on uh, Discord. There's a, uh, a Telegram page. There's uh, a Twitter. And I think there's even, I think Dave made a Facebook for it. Uh, like it or love it, a lot of drivers still use Facebook. It is what it is. Um, it was all relatively simple and... Until it came to uh, setting up all the back end for the uh, auto audio only portion of the podcast, counterintuitively, it's it's harder to set all that stuff up than it is just to set up a YouTube account and then stream videos to it. I mean, you know, that was just a matter of learning OBS Studio and and uh, things like that. But uh, when it comes to an audio only podcast, gee whiz, you've got to you've got to uh, figure out a a place to host all of your audio only podcasts in our in our case we went to red circle and i'll get back to that in a minute but uh but uh, that's I, I think podcasts in general are probably the best example of the decentralized nature of yeah. the internet and i mean it, it does suck that you have to go to like eight different places and, and feed it your rss feed so that everybody knows and everybody gets it but that's decentralized nature baby it's good yeah. stuff Especially if you want people with iPhones to be able to listen to you, which I suppose yeah. some people out there might be using iPhones, and but I they, suppose I they care just, what they think. But they can use a third-party uh, podcatcher on iPhones as well, no? What's that? But they can use a third-party podcatcher on iPhones as well, right? 
Well, I don't so, know, and that's the point. I don't know if they can get antenna pod or any of that stuff. You can't get antenna pod, but there are a ton of options like Pocket Cast or whatever. I use uh, Plex myself, which is not necessarily a podcast app. It's just something that also does podcasts. Um, but Apple Podcast isn't too difficult to get into either. So with Plex, you download the RSS feed to your computer and then use Plex to stream it to your phone? Plex has the RSS feed attached to my account, so ah. it will stream to me the MP3 from the local server. I'm going to go on a limb and assume that most people are on iPhones are not using Plex. No, they're, they're, using, probably, they're using the built-in podcast app. Yeah, they're built, They're using what, what the gods of the Apple world are telling them to use, and that's Apple Podcasts. And that means you've got you've to set up a whole other thing, so that's another layer but did you do Spotify? So, you know, you, you're taking uh, Rake and Apple through the coals, but did you also do Spotify? Yeah, that's the great thing about <laughs> Red Circle. Red Circle does all of the distributing for you. And Swatify is one of the ones that just kind of knows how to do by itself. Uh, you've got you've to set up. You actually have to set up an account on Apple Podcasts, but as far as Spotify and Google Podcasts and a couple of others um, – it just kind of knows how to do that. That's why I it, it the free tier on Red Circle, as far as I can tell, is probably the best option you could go with it without spending any money. But uh, Spotify even has a dedicated hosting app, which distributes it to other podcasts as well, other services as well. I didn't. I didn't even look for that. I was. I was trying to go with something as the least platform specific as possible. You know what I mean? I didn't want to lock myself into something I was going to have to find my way out of later on the more evil they got. So I go I go with Red uh Red Circle and they do all the distributing for me with the RSS feed and yeah, Bob's your uncle. It's all good. And then I distributed that or I I posted that um RSS that I got from Red Circle onto podcastindex.org and now it's actually searchable from any podcast player. So Bill, when I started uh, like podcasting, I used Anchor, which is a app on Spotify with, made by Spotify devs, which distributes it to different okay. things. But that is actually individual, like not everyone can record it and combine it. So that's cool. That's for solo podcasting. If you're doing it solo, it's a great app. If you want to distribute a solo podcast, well, like I like I was like I wrote down here, um, I was I wrongly assumed that if you posted on Apple Podcasts, that it would be a searchable podcast by anybody. So this app is there for iOS as well as Android. So and it distributes to Apple Podcasts as well, apart from Spotify. Yeah. Well, what ended up happening with me was I, I uploaded that podcast directly to Apple Podcasts, which made it only available to Apple Podcasts yeah, that's subscribers. True. That's really not what I was looking for. So Another feature of Anchor is you can uh, just upload your edited podcast file and it will distribute it to all the podcasts. Okay. Well, I went, I went with Red Circle. I'm pretty happy with it, I got to say. Because it's it's pretty simple, and they do all of the work for you, and so far, so good. Um, That's fine, Ben. So I think, yeah, we're, we're pretty much up and running, and I, and I have not mentioned this 
I may have mentioned it, but I'm going to mention it again. We're all three going to be using Linux Mint to awesome. produce and and uh, distribute this podcast. We're going to try and use as many open source bits as possible in the process as well, with the glaring exception of Discord. I don't know about these podcasts using Discord to make their podcasts. It just I would love to. I would love to hear uh, three. String them all up. LOL. Yeah. Well, I may be a voice, but you can still have my seal of approval. <laughs> right on. But today I was playing around with Jitsi, and I think I think that might be a drop-in replacement. I wasn't I wasn't real sure at first how easy that would be, but apparently that just works without even having to have your own server. Or you could just point your microphone to this. Uh... The radio on your in your truck and talk through the radio. <laughs> oh my! So at some point that might happen with our phones because apparently it's all just as easy to do. But uh, I ha I I couldn't tell you at this point the direction it's all going to go. I I want the whole thing to grow sort of organically. I don't want it to become just a trucker podcast. I'm quite sure there's enough of those. So can we all? And at the same time, it can we all appear? As guests, yeah, yeah, I, I will, uh, we will make that happen periodically, as long as, as long as you don't mind. <laughs> truck drivers can get a little rough sometimes. So. No problem, because we know you guys already. Whoever is like hosting it, so <laughs> it's not going to be family friendly. I'll just say that. Oh, oh, your language is going to hurt my feelings. All right, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. no, it's gonna it's gonna get a little rough. Okay, guys, um, heads up. Yeah. I am totally sleepy. I may fall asleep. Yep, we so gotta keep moving. We gotta keep moving. Just don't hit your head. <laughs> okay, so yeah, all in all, like I said, it's it's I've put mint on both of their computers and that's what we're gonna be using. Dave's got the Mate version, Steve's got the XFCE version, and uh I've got the cinnamon, so that pretty much covers all three of them. They're not tech. They're not tech people at all. So, you know, part of this is going to be an exercise in proving how useful Linux can be for normal people. I've been kind of preaching that gospel for a lot of years. That, in my opinion, Linux is easier than Windows in terms, as long as somebody set it up for you. I, I mean, suppose. I can't wait for the VI versus Emacs episode. Oh, man, it's coming. You know it. Okay, so all in all, I had a pretty productive week uh, setting all that stuff up, and I think we're going to be putting out some content here. In the There is some content on the channel already, but it's not. It's just mostly us kind of playing around and uh, showing that we're not completely incompetent. But uh, we're really looking forward to the first show. But, uh... So that's uh, that's pretty much it for me. What? Best of luck with the show, and let, let Thank me know how it goes. Right on. So, Leo, what do you got going on? Uh, I'm looking forward to that podcast that you've been talking about for a little while. Oh, yeah. So, um, that's going to be really cool. I'm excited for you. Uh, I'm, Thank you. I'm waiting, bated breath and all. It's going to be good. We're looking to we're looking to record something, I think, next weekend. They want to nice. do the first episode down here in my basement. That way, if there's any technical issues, then I'll be right here to yeah, walk through it. Yeah, I got the Linux it. guru ready to go. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think the, the Vim and Emacs episode is going to be an interesting one because about five minutes into the show, you're going to have to admit that you just you, you gave up and started scrawling stuff on stone tablets. It was easier. 
I don't have either it's one of those memory, things installed. It's also memory safe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? It's only your memory that is faulty. <laughs> but uh, for myself, I've been playing with MX Linux uh, for Linux user space. It's about uh, three weeks ago as we record this. We started on MX Linux. And, I mean, it's it's mostly Debian. So, you know, if you can get along with Debian, you can get, on, get along with MX. But... MX packages a whole lot more in their own repo than Debian does, and I'm really loving that because you can get stuff like BPyTop without having to go out of your way and like install something like Snap or install Python 3 and PIP3 so that you can install it that way. Uh, it's just nice. There's, there's a lot of tooling in there that I didn't expect to see on a Debian-based distro, but I guess you could say what MX Linux is to Debian is kind of what Linux Mint is to Ubuntu, just niceties on top of an already amazing system yeah so it's good stuff if i wasn't using debian testing uh, i would just move straight to mx and not not even consider yeah. debian stable i'm not i'm not really seeing anything besides so outside of Flatpak and the mx repo i'm not seeing anything that i need on a debian based distro that i don't have so i mean as far as it goes I think it's fantastic. So I'm using uh, Nishan. I'm using the the KDE Plasma Hard AHS version. You don't, you Advanced can't get the non hardware supports. No, which yeah. version? Twenty. You can't get that's what the I newest. Whatever is that? Twenty one. Twenty one. Uh, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Whatever the newest ISO was, I grabbed that and installed it, and I didn't look at it again. I just started writing angry notes about uh, Debian base. <laughs> <laughs> so are you satisfied with the Debian base? Yeah, I, I don't see any, any reason not to. And then on top of that, you can use the NPR if you just, like, don't have something. So uh, Moss is shaking his head at me, but uh, I know that's not because, you know, Rudra's NPR is not good enough. Well, of course. No, I, I have installed MX and been playing with it and not liking it. And It's because you use XFCE, Moss. You got to use Plasma yeah. and get the nice, shiny, fadey, blurry experience. That's where you're at. That's where you need to be. So no, it's amazing. No GNOME edition? I don't think so. You can install GNOME, but no. Uh, plus, it would... Uh, is it GNOME 40, I think? But it'll like uh, never be updated again? 38. So. 38. Oh, is it still 38? Yeah, because uh, GNOME 40 came out in last year, around March or April. And uh, Debian Bullseye came out in August, but they're still stuck to 38. Ooh. I mean, that's fine, but sad times. You can have GNOME 40 on testing, but... I I wanted to try it, but it it insisted, it, but it insisted on pulling uh, Pulse Audio for dependencies. So I'm not sure if you can replace it with Pipe yet on Debian. So for GNOME, I just concluded that you have to go with Fedora. Well, speaking of GNOME, though, um, I mean, I've been giving it a real fair shake. Not 3.38. I no. Um, there there were some performance improvements in GNOME 40 that I had to have to actually run it on my laptop. But um, it's gotten to the point now where I'm pretty confident running it on everything. Uh, my laptop can keep up, but uh, where I tried it was on Fedora. Well, I, 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 I tried it on Nix. I tried it on Void. I tried it on Endeavor, and those gnomes all ran faster than on Fedora, and I couldn't figure, it yep. out, figure out why until I realized that just turning on extensions, not having an extension running, but turning on the ability to run extensions costs your CPU in time. As soon as uh, so, I, I turned off the watermark of uh, that Fedora ships, and I still had the same performance. But I turned off the extension, the main toggle for it, and I got performance that was equal to Nix Void and Endeavor OS. So just having extensions on 
slows things down. Not much. And I was eight gigabits of RAM. Well, right. Uh, well, it, RAM doesn't have anything to do with it. I have twenty gigs, but the the issue is that my CPU and GPU are just on the verge of being able to run GNOME, and by turning on extensions, it puts me over on the stuttery side. So by turning them off, I get way better performance. And you know, because on this desktop and on my main desktop, any GNOME ran fine. But on my laptop, it's in that little area where a little too much and you can start to feel it. Oh, coming so, to that uh, little too much area, sometimes my whole GNOME desktop freezes on some distributions, not all. Specifically Ubuntu, it like completely freezes. I have to hard reboot. I'm going to blame that on NVIDIA. <laughs> I don't have any NVIDIA, so I don't know. Wayland, uh, I've never run Wayland, into just like full-on uh, freezes. GNOME and Wayland, especially on some operating systems. On these two, some right, right, but but you're on Nvidia. Um, I haven't had any real issues moving over to Wayland outside of well, you can't do screen record. You can now, but like you know, you couldn't in the past. So uh, that's really the only issues I've ran into. But the the one thing that I need to get sorted out is the app indicators, right? Because uh, there's a lot of programs that run in the tray that GNOME doesn't display to you if you don't run extensions. Uh, so like Discord and Element. Like you click X and they never turn off. So you go up to the little the little drop down thing that you can do in GNOME and click quit. They actually don't turn off. So there's no actual way to turn off Discord and Element that a normal user would find. No, but you have to go and wouldn't Discord resist to the notification bars because it. Yeah, but I don't have a notification bar because it's GNOME. Yeah, because it's GNOME. I don't have app indicators. I can't turn it off. That so that that's an issue that I'm running into, and Element uh, is the same way. Oh, now, what's funny. funny is that Telegram is the opposite. For like on Linux Mint that I'm running here, I can click X on Telegram and it'll recess to the tray. But if I do that on GNOME, for some reason the app indicator because it doesn't exist, I assume Telegram is just like, oh, all right, cool, you want me to close? So it closes, and that makes a really big difference in GNOME because they don't ship with a minimize button. No, you have to use tweaks to actually enable it. No, I know. But what what I'm saying is like That's... the gnome experience is this right here is what I'm what I'm explaining to you. Yes, Leo, but you can use those amazing swipes to move to clean workspace and leave Telegram on the other workspace. No, the the point is I don't want them running. Discord and Element actually use a ton of battery in the background. Yep. They're still updating over Wi-Fi. They're still uh, rendering things because they're Electron. So, so uh, no, I meant uh, instead of minimizing Telegram. Oh, I see. Just put it onto a different work. I guess that would work. Uh, I did also find the hotkey, um, what, what is it? Super H will hide a window. So that's the only way that I can do Telegram anymore. But I'll forget and close it and it'll die and I won't get notifications that upset me. <laughs> I don't use Telegram, but these days, um, considering... Were I'm... you on Telegram? I've seen you in a Delmint group a few weeks ago. No, I am there. I am there, but I'm rarely using. So 2023 will be... 2022, my aim is to cut Telegram usage due to some reason. Your words to me were, Bill, I don't use Telegram. <laughs> But I do yeah. pop in once in a while in between just to check what's going on in the groups. Otherwise, it's full of messages, which million messages. On the other hand, I started so using you Telegram. So you do use Telegram. Yeah. On the other hand, I started using Telegram last week just specifically to I be able to reach Linux Don't worry about it. I will be slowly, slowly coming back into the Linux groups uh, because it has been like some groups have been so terrible, like toxic. Yes. On the other hand, some groups are very nice. Can I shout out the... Uh, 
specifically the Fedora groups, the Fedora group and the Endeavorous group. I'm in the country-specific Fedora group and they have been really helpful. So I decided to... Okay, let's... Well, finishing up on GNOME, um, the it's it's 99%, I think. The little, those little issues are weird. Uh, but Mint is still number one because that's what I'm recording on now. It's what I do my editing on. So, you know, Mint is still it. Mint is 100%. So, there you go. I'm still getting used but to Joe, Mint, but that's fine. I also what? love Mint. It ticks all the boxes. So, Joe, what have you been up to, man? I'm not even supposed to be here today. I know. You were supposed to be off doing fun things or yeah. something, right? I was supposed to have an appointment today, <laughs> but it was moved out to an unknown date as of this point. Oh, and, you know, kudos to anybody that actually caught that reference for that quote that I just did. But um, uh, recently I put in my paperwork and now I am officially running for school board. See how well that goes. There you go. Don't talk about it, Joe. Be about it. And you've you've been about it. That's awesome. Which position if i may board of trustees i mean you start at the bottom um the the head of the board of trustees is just the person that's been there the longest and that's the person i'm running against good luck with that i mean i hope you get that uh, position whichever you're playing for i'm gonna try okay uh some of the custom headphones that i've worked on in the past have started coming apart and i've had to redo a lot of the work it happens every now and again especially since you know i use this every day but it, it is getting a little annoying. I rebuilt one and then it fell apart again like two, three days later. I think I'm just going to completely replace the casing on it. But um, I, I already have 3D prints for it. It's not that big. I did have to order some more parts, but um, they'll come in and I'll get it all fixed. Uh, I have also been playing around with SCRCPY, uh, screen copy wireless, which is cool and useful when I'm working. Uh, screen copy shares your screen of your Android phone onto your PC and allows you to control your phone from your PC. Uh, screen copy wireless uses ADB wireless to get rid of the wires. Um, now when I first installed from the deb, it worked fine until my phone updated to Android 12. And then I had to go back in and install the snap to get things working. It is actually really useful when I'm working to have the, just a, a window available to, you know, so I don't have to pull my phone out of my pocket or whatever and just look at the screen and be able to answer calls, decline calls, answer messages, things like that. And plus it's screen copy that's wireless just makes it awesome. Let's see. The winter storm rolled into Texas again and it has been very cold. <sighs> Thankfully, we only lost power the one time, but in that one time, I guess there was also a power surge of some kind because I had a stick of RAM go bad in my server and one of my hard drives and my laptop had a partition go bad, as well as the uh, ThinkPad port replicator that was hooked to my laptop. I was able to pull some of the RAM from the server and for now I'm leaving the bad partition on that laptop alone and I have a bunch of extras of the port replicator, but I will be looking to replace the hard drive with an SSD and I'm going to replace the RAM probably in the next month or two. Um, I also started testing USB IP on my Pi 4. I was kind of surprised with how easy it was to set up initially and so that I could use a pair of headphones on the Pi but have the audio be from my PC. Like I didn't even realize that I still had it set up and the USB dongle for my Razer Nari Ultimates that I'm wearing right now is hooked into my Pi 4 and so all my audio has been going through there this whole time. Uh, not the mic which also does work but I prefer to use this other mic instead of the Nari's. 
Um, my next steps will be to set up the service on both machines so that the connection happens automatically. Then I'll need to order the USB hat for the Pi Zero and move everything to the Zero W. Um, I'm also going to need to 3D print a case for it and find a battery solution. Now I've already found a um, 3D file, an STL, that is for the um, USB hub that fits on top of the Pi Zero. Um, I think it'll come out well and I'll be able to move around my house while podcasting using my current headphones and hopefully with good sound quality anywhere that I go in the house. Um, also want to mention that the setup was easy in Raspberry OS, but did not work as well in, um, Manjaro on the Pi, which is where I tried it the first time. Um, but I'll, I'll get much more into the details on that when we finally do another Pi episode. Um, I also started using auto tab discard in Chrome. It helps with RAM usage by killing Chrome tabs that you're not using, which has been helpful since I had to cut my RAM in half. Um, the tab will have to reload if you go back to it, but if you use a large volume of tabs at the same time, then it is really helpful. You can also set certain tabs to not shut down or certain domains. Um, that's kind of it, unless you really want to hear about um, my PRs on the bench. 295? Uh, yeah, 295. Three times. Super happy with it. Nishant, what have you been up to? Uh, nothing much. I was stuck in a quarantine for like one month. Today I went out uh, exploring the new area a bit. And uh, and I'm happy to say that I finally migrated full-time to Linux use, even though I'm distro hopping a lot. What are you currently on? Currently I'm on Pop! OS. Next, after the show, I'll be on Papermint OS 11. Then uh, I also, in the last week, I tried out Makulu Linux Shift, which has the different options for different uh, desktop layouts, which includes GNOME, Plasma as two of the main layouts. Uh, it's a very interesting distribution, and I might install that as well later on. And before the next, sh uh, I also started setting up a YouTube channel for uh, distribution reviews, and will be slowly getting on with it as soon as I discover more linux distros and do more uh, research on them so that's my two weeks that's the life of a person who has a single laptop so it's and okay. a single hard drive if i had one tb one tb ssd i wouldn't have did you did you mention that big right yes I'll... because i was sort of yeah okay like okay i think what i think is practically using linux on a, the terminal will help me get those commands uh, memorized or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. like Leo said on the text channel, like up, if you remove the GUI and if you use Linux, that's how you can practically oh, get next. You can just type yes, do as I say, and you will be good to go. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. But speaking of LPIC, which is the Linux Professional Institute certification for Linux administrators, which Rishant is uh, planning to take this year, it's very soon, uh, we had the idea of uh, inviting Leo back to to talk about a bit more in our innards. So look forward to that in the second half of this show. All right, then let's move to announcements. Our next episode will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central, time on the 20th of February, 2022. 
you can also get this converted to your own time zone with the link in the description. Our next live stream will be 2 p.m. US Central Time on the 12th of February 2022. You can convert this link to your, to your own time zone as well. And now for our wrap up. If you want to reach me, you can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org. Joe, when can we find you? Well, if you like the sound of my voice, you can uh, listen to a couple of my other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show. That's at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast. That's linuxlugcast.com. Uh, you can find me on MeWe. You can send me an email, jb at mincast.org. Or if you can get to the show notes, you can buy me a coffee. Moss, how about you? You can email me at bardmoss at pm.me. Uh, you can hear me on Full Circle Weekly News every week and Distro Hoppers Digest roughly every month. And my other contact information can be found on itsmoss.com. Nishant? Uh, you can contact me at nishant at mintcast.org. And if you want to collaborate on a project, it's ReconGhost at GitHub. And if you want to play some games, it's Maverick00783 at Steam. Yeah, so I'm for now, I'm uh, Bill at Mincast.org. I'm Bill underscore H at Discord. I'm at WCHauser3 on the Twitter and WCHauser3 on the Facebook. And before long, you can get a hold of me. Well, you can get a hold of me also uh, on my other show's email, uh, show at 3ftpodcast.org. How about you, Leo? Oh, Leo ain't here. Yeah, he had to leave early, but you can find him at leochavez.org and at leochavez on Twitter or at leo at c.im on Mastodon, as well as on his other podcast, Linux User Space, on linuxuserspace.show, or you can buy him a coffee at coffee.com slash leochavez. Josh Hawk couldn't be here today, but you can reach him at joshontech at minkas.org, at joshontech on Twitter, and most other social media, as well as on his other podcast, Crowbar Kernel Panic. And the other, other Josh, or as I like to call him, Josh the Third, he couldn't make it to the either, but you can reach him at jt at mintcast.org, Josh Sacker on Discord, and at metal underscore false on Twitter, which is, in my humble opinion, the best Twitter handle in the history of Twitter names. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Josh Lowe for his work on the website, Hopstar for our logo, Initardi for the animated Discord logo, and Londra for our time sync. Bytemark Hosting for hosting Mincast.org and our Backup Mambo server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files, HPR for our Backup Mambo room, and finally the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we, like to t- we love to talk about. Thanks Clem. Thanks Clem. Thanks Clem. Thanks Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the